St. Thomas met the Dominicans for the first time while at university in Naples in the south of Italy. He was so taken with them that it changed the course of his life. Thomas was already on course for an ecclesiastical life, a life in the church, but it was almost certainly with the Benedictine monks of Monte Cassino, where his family had sent him to school. His family, which was from Aquino, was a noble family. Many members of his family were soldiers. Thomas was the strong, silent type, but his family obviously intended that he would join Monte Cassino and presumably become its abbot, a fitting position for a member of a powerful family. Thomas's meeting with the Dominicans in Naples changed all that. What could have attracted Thomas to an order that was so novel and unrespectable compared with the Benedictines? It was surely what he saw the Dominican friars doing in Naples, preaching and teaching. The fact that they prayed together could hardly have been a surprise to him because it was the same contemplative life, more or less, that the monks lived at Monte Cassino. But the Dominicans had come into existence at the time Thomas was a young boy as an order of preachers, charged with preaching the Catholic faith to others, with a vocation to be instrumental day to day in the salvation of others, rather than just working out their own salvation inside the monastery. It was a mobile order and in principle worldwide. Although this is something he wrote later in life, in his famous Summa Theologiae, St. Thomas's account of the different kinds of religious life that could be lived, contemplative and active, surely gives a sense of how he quickly came to view Dominican life. There is no doubt that Thomas saw the contemplative life as greater than the active life. After all, the contemplative life here and now was a point of continuity with the life of the world to come, when we shall see and contemplate God just as he really is. Eternal life is begun here and now in an imperfect way in the life of faith. And Christian contemplation in this life, such as was practiced by the monks of Monte Cassino, was based securely on this Christian faith. Because this purpose of a contemplative order was related to divine things rather than human things, divine things contemplated through our minds, the mind being the highest 
and distinctive part of the human being. It was clearly better in itself than any of the purposes of purely active orders, say welcoming guests or almsgiving or military activity, which is one of the purposes of an active order that came easily to Thomas's mind, perhaps because his own family was a military one. But Thomas argues that the best kind of life, the best kind of religious life, is one that combines contemplation and the activity of preaching and teaching. He compares the superiority of this combination to the way lighting up something else is better than light just shining on its own. He says that it's better to hand on what you've contemplated than just to contemplate. Although he doesn't say so here, St. Thomas is clearly describing the way of life of the order of preachers. I suspect that as a young man in Naples, St. Thomas saw this kind of life in the Dominicans and decided that it was the best one, or at least it was best for him. St. Thomas also writes at this point about issues concerning entering a religious order. And he says how in doing so, it's better to obey God rather than one's parents. This surely reflects Thomas's own experience, where his family proved to be more like enemies to him than friends when he joined the Dominicans in 1244. His mother came down to Naples, but she was too late to stop the clothing. Thomas had already received the habit and was on his way to the important Dominican priory at Bologna, where the founder of the order, St. Dominic, was buried, and he was, but Thomas was bound eventually for Paris. She sent a message ahead to some of her sons, who were part of the emperor's military force just north of Rome. They ambushed Thomas on the road and attempted to remove the Dominican habit from him. However, as I said, Thomas was himself a large person and was big and strong enough to fight his brothers off. The worst that happened to the habit was that it got a bit ripped. The family then held him captive in the family castle for a year. The time wasn't wasted because he could devote himself to prayer and study, and he read right through the Bible. His brothers hired a prostitute to seduce him, but he chased her away instead. Thomas refused to give up on being a Dominican, and in the end, it was his family who gave up and released him. I think we can conclude that St. Thomas was a very determined young man. Dominican friars today 
are sons of a particular province in the order. I'm from the English province. But in St. Thomas's time, you remained sons of the priory you joined. And St. Thomas's priory was Naples. But the Dominicans were a worldwide order. And as I said, just like today, when the professors of the Angelicum Thomistic Institute are from different, different provinces, but working together here in Rome. So St. Thomas spent much of his Dominican life away from Naples. His initial training was in Paris and Cologne, and he then taught in Paris, in Orvieto, in Rome, then back in Paris, and finally in Naples. From his time in Naples, we have some catechetical sermons he gave to groups of laypeople in the vernacular language on the Creed, on the Our Father, and the Hail Mary. Most of Thomas's work of preaching and teaching was, however, in Latin and in an academic setting, which in St. Thomas's time involved not only a more academic kind of sermon, but also students as well as masters commenting on authoritative texts, such as books of the Bible, and the master then presiding over debates known as disputed questions. In 1248, after a few years of study in Paris, Thomas went to Cologne, where the order was founding a studium generale, that is a general study house, where Dominican brothers could come from all over the order and study together. Every Dominican house was officially a house of study, and academic study was a formal part of Dominican life from early on. As preachers, the friars needed to know their stuff, and St. Dominic could see to it that the first friars got an education. As St. Thomas would realize, study was important for the contemplative life too and it helped friars contemplate aright and avoid error. With study as such an important priority, having general study houses in places like Paris and Cologne made a lot of practical sense. In Cologne, students like Thomas would have access to one of the greatest Dominican intellectuals of the age, St. Albert the Great. From his time in Naples, Thomas would already have known about the great influx into the West of previously unknown texts of Aristotle and his medieval Arab and Jewish commentators, together with previously unknown Christian texts. Albert, was one of those who valued this new knowledge and set about critically evaluating it. 
Thomas ended up being appointed to write up Albert's lectures on Aristotle's ethics and on the celestial hierarchy attributed to Dionysius the Areopagite. Moreover, Albert was the greatest scientist of his day and was much involved in the study of different forms of animal life. While Thomas ended up working in more strictly theological and philosophical areas, he learned from Albert a great appreciation of the natural world and how knowledge gained from Christian and non-Christian sources could be fruitfully brought together. There is the story that Thomas's classmates at the time nicknamed him the dumb ox. As I said, he was the strong, silent type. They were obviously taken not just by his size, but by the fact that he never really said anything. It was when he lost some of his lecture notes that he first came to Albert's attention. The student who found his notes handed them in to Albert, and Albert was so impressed that he got Thomas to speak in one of the disputations he was presiding over. Roughly what happened in a debate was this. Students took different sides on some disputed questions, and they presented arguments going one way or the other. And then the master would come in and decide the question definitively, together with definitive answers to the arguments that had been put the other way. Thomas was assigned on the correct side of the debate and gave such good arguments that he was already doing the master's job of settling the question definitively. When Albert told him he was doing his job, Thomas replied that he didn't know how to discuss the question in any other way. I suppose he was a master even before he got the master's degree. And this is when Albert famously told the class that one day the bellowing of the dumb ox would be heard throughout the whole world. Not only did Albert make Thomas his assistant and give him the tasks I mentioned a moment ago, but he also recommended him for going back to Paris and formally become a master there. The path of a bachelor to become a master involved lecturing on books of the Bible and then the sentences of Peter Lombard, a textbook which brought together lots of insights from scripture and the fathers of the church, like St. Augustine, to address questions of Christian teaching in a systematic way at the end of which the lecturer could qualify as a regent or teaching master. Thomas not only taught, but was already publishing his first works, 
such as his own commentary on the sentences. Here we can find Thomas's early opinions, many of which he kept throughout his life, and some of which he changed as he learnt or thought more. We should not think, though, that all this took place in some calm, peaceful environment. All this, in fact, took place within a highly charged, heated atmosphere, because the secular clergy, priests who were not members of religious orders, were objecting to members of orders like the Dominicans and the Franciscans taking positions in the university. At one point, the religious were thrown out, but the Pope reinstated them. The students of the secular clergy would menace the religious and make them afraid to go outside their priories. The king even had to post archers on one occasion to protect a Dominican lecturer. Things were so pressured that Thomas only had one day's notice to give his inaugural lecture as a master. It was in this heated and difficult atmosphere that Thomas began his academic career. Not only did Thomas perform these standard tasks in this period, but he also started writing other books that were not part of his formal teaching, but which other people asked him to write, something that happened quite often. It's interesting that these early works were of a more philosophical bent. One was called On Being and Essence, and the other was called On the Principles of Nature. These analyzed the various concepts at work in our minds for understanding reality, all those principles that we can use to make sense of nature. This makes me think that from the very beginning, though a theologian, Thomas saw the need for a clear philosophical understanding of the world. Like Albert, he appreciated what God offered us through the working of our own human reason, as well as what God revealed about himself and the creation to our faith. We can see how faith and reason come together in the disputed questions Thomas published from the classroom. In his De Veritate on Truth, he covered not only truth, but also God's knowledge, the knowledge of angels and human knowledge, the nature of the mind, of teaching, of faith, of conscience, of the good, the will, free will, passions, and divine grace. But bringing divine faith and human reason together also meant being able to distinguish clearly what each one contributed to Christian wisdom. We can see these distinguished very clearly in the work St. Thomas began in Paris, which was probably meant to be called On the Truth of the Catholic Faith but is known to posterity as the Summa Contra Gentiles, 
to summer against the pagans. The work was divided into four books, the first three of which treated what could be known by natural reason alone about God, creation, and divine providence, with the fourth treating what faith alone can tell us, namely that God is a trinity, and as well about the incarnation, the sacraments, and the last judgment. It's in the last book that we learn the highest wisdom we have from God. But the first three books provided common ground for disputing with people who didn't accept the Christian religion. Rational arguments can then be used for convincing non-Christians about much of what Christians believe and making more plausible to them what Christians believe from divine revelation alone. Hence, it's often supposed that Thomas must have had missionaries in mind when he wrote the book. What we definitely see in the opening of this summer is how Thomas saw his own work for God in the order. He writes, the pursuit of wisdom is more perfect, more sublime, more useful, and more joyful than all other human pursuits. It is more perfect because, to the extent that someone devotes himself to the pursuit of wisdom, he already has a certain share of true happiness. He says that this share in true happiness is a kind of likeness to God. And because we become somehow like God, this gives rise to love of him, such that wisdom brings us into friendship with God. This, I think, is how Thomas saw himself as someone who was pursuing wisdom through contemplation. And a little further, he continues, therefore, with trust in divine mercy, pursuing the task of a wise man, although this surpasses our own powers, our intention is to clarify in our own small way the truth which the Catholic faith professes, eliminating contrary errors. At this point, St. Thomas speaks as he very rarely does in the first person. I do this so that I may make my own the words of Hilary. Then he quotes one of the church fathers, Hilary of Poitiers. He says, or the quotation is, I am mindful that I owe this to God as the greatest task of my life, that my every word and thought would speak of him. It was Thomas's intention to fill his mind and speech with the reality of God, with divine wisdom, by clarifying, by making clear what the Catholic faith is. In this way, he could certainly help his students not only to contemplate better, but themselves to make the Catholic faith 
better and more widely known. Thomas, however, only got to make a start on his Summa Contra Gentilis while he was in Paris. Dominicans didn't stay regent masters for long because other friars needed to come through and be trained up as professors. In 1259, he had a role with Albert and others in sorting out the syllabus for Dominican students, and it was now to include philosophy as well as theology. After a brief time back in Naples, where he was given a secretary, Reginald of Peperno, Thomas was assigned to Orvieto, a town north of Rome. Here he continued the Summa Contra Gentiles, and it looks like he was writing a commentary on Job, which focuses on divine providence, according to Thomas. He was doing that at the same time as he was working on the Summa's section on providence. Thomas seems to have got the idea that working on a commentary on a text at the same time as he was working on its main idea in a systematic work was a fruitful way of working. At the same time, he was working on books at other people's requests. One request came from Reginald, who asked him to write a shorter systematic work on the Christian faith. The result was the Compendium of Theology, planned around the Christian life according to faith, hope, and charity. Unfortunately, St. Thomas only finished the faith section, but if you want an overview of his theology written by the man himself, it's a relatively short read. The move to Orvieto proved especially significant because one month after Thomas arrived, the papal curia did too. This meant that not only, not only that St. Thomas had some requests to write from the Pope himself, but he also had access to the papal library and archives. One thing the Pope asked him to do was put together a commentary on the four gospels drawn from the fathers of the church. It is known as the Catena Aurea, the golden chain. I forgot, I'll write it up later. It required lots of research into the fathers of the church, and Thomas had the papal library at his disposal. Lots of material then, unknown in the West, was unearthed, and Thomas had others translate relevant passages from the Greek fathers into Latin. The Pope also asked him to write on the sayings of the Greek fathers that appeared problematic for Catholic doctrine. Thomas was very positive about the Greek fathers and often saw them as saying the same thing as the Latin fathers, but expressed in different ways. Access to the papal library and archives also allowed him to discover the acts of various early councils of the church, which made important decisions about Catholic belief on matters like the Trinity 
and Christ. Other theologians of Thomas's time knew that these councils taught such things as Jesus was one person in two natures. But Thomas was now able to quote the original formulae and acts for himself. All this research gave St. Thomas an unparalleled knowledge of Christian tradition for someone in his time and place. It could not but have a profound effect on his theological thinking. Eventually, the papal curia left and moved on to Perugia, and in 1265, St. Thomas was assigned to Rome. He lived at Santa Sabina, which we'll be visiting, I think it's tomorrow afternoon. His task was to set up a Dominican studium there, and it was his opportunity to put decisions about the Dominican curriculum into effect. The most important thing he did was to begin his most important work, the Summa Theologiae. At the beginning, Thomas expresses his dissatisfaction with other textbooks and methods of teaching that were available at the time for teaching theology. One basic problem was that you had, when you were commenting, you had to follow the order of the text, which might not be the best order for educating students. Or in a disputation, you just got that topic, sometimes randomly chosen. St. Thomas must have been dissatisfied even with his own Summa Contra Gentiles, which, as we've seen, split up the material between what could be argued from human reason and what could be argued from the authority of divine revelation. In the new Summa, he set things out as he thought best for students new to a more systematic approach to theology, who already had some philosophical and biblical study behind them. So unlike the Summa Contra Gentiles, the Summa Theologiae is a more synthetic work of theology as such, which integrates both faith and reason into a single overview of Christian doctrine, where we see reason at work in helping students to inquire into and gain deeper understanding of the faith. Unlike the Summa Contra Gentiles, which reads more like a modern book, the Summa is divided up into questions and sub-questions or articles, which ultimately arise out of an attentive reading of scripture. Each article is based around the form of the classroom disputation. It raises a particular question and inquires into it by putting arguments either way, with Thomas then giving his own response, like the master in the classroom. He then replies to each of the objections that have already been put to his own conclusion and answers them, 
sometimes taking the opportunity to develop his own position further in response to differing views. This has the advantage of taking other views as seriously as he could and finding what truth was to be found in them and exactly where their views differed from his own. What distinguishes the Summa, though, from other textbooks was the way Thomas put everything, as I said, in what he thought was the best order for teaching theology. The whole Summa is arranged around God, because divine revelation and theology, or sacred teaching, as Thomas says, are about God. Thomas treats not only God, but everything else insofar as it's related to God. So after treating God the Holy Trinity in himself, Thomas turns to God as the beginning and the end of all things, creatures, origin, and goal. The summer is divided into three parts. The first part treats of God and creation, things coming forth from God, including the human creature who is made in God's image. In the second part, St. Thomas looks at how a human being can be perfected, becoming more like God, and so make its return journey to the God from whom it came. The third part treats of the route this journey takes, that is, of Jesus Christ, as the way by which humans make their return to God and the sacraments of his church. And as I've already said, Thomas had the habit of working on other things that were relevant to the section of the systematic work he was writing. While in Rome, he commented on the divine names attributed to Dionysius, which treated of our knowledge of God. He also produced disputed questions on God's power, on angels, and on the human soul. He also took up the practice of writing commentaries on the works of Aristotle, the first of which was on the soul. All these topics were relevant to the first part of the Summa Theologiae. Commenting on these works obviously helped him clarify his own ideas. Again, St. Thomas had only gotten started on his Summa before he was moved once more. Rome was invaded in the summer of 1268, and Thomas was moved back to Paris for a second stint as regent master. A second term like this was unusual for any professor. He found Paris just as much a hothouse of conflict as it had been the first time. First, the old tension between secular masters and the religious orders had flared up again. And Thomas wrote books defending the life of the friars and responding to their critics. 
But there was also a second conflict, which had been caused by the greater prominence of Aristotle's works in the university. The study of his texts in the arts faculty had been giving students the impression that human reasoning led to a conflict with Christian teaching. For example, the texts of Aristotle seemed to say that the world had always existed, while the Bible said that God created it in the beginning. With his sensitivity to the relationship between faith and reason, St. Thomas was well qualified to step into and write on this controversy as well. His position was that while Aristotle had arguments in favor of an eternal universe, they were not conclusive. In fact, philosophy alone could not prove either way whether or not the universe had a beginning. But God had revealed the answer to Christian faith. As well as continuing with the Summa and writing on the works of Aristotle, Thomas also wrote commentaries on scripture, as he'd done from the beginning of his career. His work on the Gospel of John is particularly noteworthy because a lot of his speculative thinking pours into his biblical commentary in a way that it doesn't say in his commentary on Matthew or on Paul. Thomas's biblical commentaries are often comparatively basic in terms of his treatment of the texts. Of course, many theological questions arise out of reading biblical texts, and Thomas treated all these in his own logical order in the Summa Theologiae. But this deeper level of thinking in the Summa allowed him to bring that depth of speculation back to commenting on a biblical text. We can see this most clearly in his commentary on John. And he, th he himself thought that John was a more profound gospel than the other three. While all four Gospels treated Jesus as God-made man, the fourth Gospel penetrated through to the divinity of Jesus more so than the other three, he thought, while not losing sight of Jesus's humanity. Commenting on John's Gospel was a perfect work to accompany St. Thomas's work on Christ in the third part of the Summa, while his speculative work on the Summa could help him write richly on God, the Holy Trinity, and Christ in the commentary on John. In 1272, Thomas finished his second period as regent in Paris and returned to Naples to set up a new studium there. I said earlier, how he was also preaching in the vernacular language to local audiences. He never completed the Summa after undergoing a mystical experience 
in December 1273 while celebrating Mass. He told Reginald that he couldn't go on with the summer because everything he'd written in it seemed like straw to him in comparison with what he'd seen and what had been revealed to him during Mass. He did, however, complete the section on the Eucharist, and Thomas is especially known for his work on this sacrament. This also reflects the fact that the Eucharist was of especial importance to him personally. We can see this, for example, in the texts for the new feast of Corpus Christi, which he had composed back in Orvieto at the request of the Pope. People also remembered that St. Thomas said Mass every morning, unless he was ill. And this devotion was seen as something extraordinary because it was unusual at that time for priests to celebrate Mass on a daily basis. St. Thomas died on the way to the Second Council of Lyon, to which the Pope had summoned him. The Council was to try to reunite the Catholic and the Eastern churches. And Thomas was, of course, an expert on Greek theology. He was already declining in health when he left Naples for France in the February of 1274. He hit his head on the branch of a tree, which hastened his death. Because he would rather die in a religious house, he was taken to a nearby Cistercian abbey at Fossanova, where he received Holy Communion and the last rites. He died on the morning of the 7th of March, 1274. Those who were present at his death remembered him making a final profession of faith in the Eucharist and submitting all his teachings to the judgment of the Roman Church. After his death, Thomas's ideas continued to be controversial because Aristotelian ideas in general continued to be controversial in academia. However, this meant that his ideas were actually defended by members of the Dominican order, while medieval theology in general took other directions. St. Thomas, however, was canonized in 1323, nearly 700 years ago. By the 15th century, there was more interest in Thomas, and some people in France and then Spain started using the Summa as a textbook in place of Peter Lombard's sentences. Partly because the Reformation was blamed in part on late medieval scholasticism. This led to a revival of Thomism in Spain in the 16th century, where theologians could treat new problems in the context of the overall structure of Thomas's theology. 
With the rise of modern philosophy, modern science, and the Enlightenment, there came another Thomist revival in the middle of the 19th century. I think we are now in the midst of yet another renewal of interest in St. Thomas. With his careful distinction between and his deep appreciation of the unity between faith and reason, he will always be a great example for philosophers and theologians to follow. And he is the source of many philosophical and theological ideas of enduring significance, some of which we hope to introduce you to over the next few days. So that's everything I could think to say in an introduction to the life and work of St. Thomas Aquinas in the time available. 